Hi, this is Jessica Delian, and you're listening to the Westchester Church Podcast with the most handsome man in the world, David Creek. Is that how I was supposed to say it, David? Okay. And you're gonna, you can just mail me the check for doing that. Okay. All right, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew 5. We're going to continue in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Man, do I have a hard act to go after, after our Ladies' Day yesterday. I mean, I bask in the way that our women love and serve our God. I mean, I really do. My love for Jesus and for this church is stronger as a result of it. And I just want to let, especially our ladies, know how proud of you I am for a tremendous day yesterday. Matthew 5 and starting in verse 17 Here's what we hear the Lord say to us. He says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Then he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. And I would especially like to begin with that very first part where we hear Jesus say, Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. Now, we know that this would be an accusation which would actually come against Jesus more than once in the gospel books. We know that a little bit later on, once his ministry really gets off the ground and it gains momentum, that there were many people hypothesizing that that this guy over here, Yeshua, is trying to destroy the, you know, the law of Moses that we, we love and adhere to as much as we do. We remember that, that instance where we see Jesus heal a man, move with compassion, and he heals a man who had a condition. And yet there are scribes and Pharisees who are just kind of hanging by who say, wait a minute, this is on a Sabbath day. And you are in violation of section 665CC5R99998.3 because we believe that you're not allowed to do anything on the Sabbath that we deem inappropriate. It doesn't matter that you just somehow healed this man of something he's had for years. You are in violation of the law of Moses. And I want to emphasize this right here because this is what the scribes and Pharisees were notorious for. We, we remember on yet another occasion, we see Jesus and his apostles going through a grain field. It's also on the Sabbath, and the apostles are very hungry, and they start eating out of this field. And it always makes me laugh out loud when I read that, that specific text, because Jesus and his apostles are kind of out in the middle of nowhere, but, but out, out of the, the trees and bushes pop scribes and Pharisees, just waiting to nail them on something. You are in violation of our... Um, unwritten rules. You're not supposed to be picking through grain on the Sabbath. How dare you do that, right? And yet where they really start flipping their, their wigs is when Jesus says, you see this huge building called a temple right here. 
I want you to demolish this building. And I want you to watch me raise it up again in three days. We see later on as Jesus is dragged into this illegal courtroom, this was one of the, the really trumped up charges. He wants to destroy the temple. He wants to destroy the laws and the customs of Moses. Jesus is saying, don't think for a second that that is what I have actually come to do. But we know about Jesus that, that as his ministry is in its infancy, this is something that had sent shockwaves all throughout Jerusalem. As we see early on in Mark's gospel, it says that they're, they're watching Jesus heal people and, and they listen to him speak and they start saying, what is this? I mean, what are we even looking at here? What is this guy saying and doing? It's so incredible. And then they start saying, this is a new teaching that has great authority. We know that at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, we will see this later on in the year, that as Jesus stopped speaking, it says that the crowds were amazed at his teaching. And the reason why they were such awestruck is because that he was teaching them as one who had authority, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus says, don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. Now, as he says law and prophets, this in the Old Covenant, this was really two main divisions of that Old Covenant in, in the Testament. And I'd like to begin with that part where he says law of Moses. Now, if you were a Jew living in the first century or even way before this, that law of Moses was by far the most sacred, sacrosanct institution that there was on the face of this earth. It had what, where if we were, were Jews living in this time, it was Torah. What the Torah is, is the first five books of the Bible. Anyone know them? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Man, Christine is on it today. It was the Torah. It was also a prayer called the Shema. And to this day, Jews, multiple times a day, Jesus himself prayed this prayer all 33 years that he walked this earth. Three times a day, where really what the Shema is, is in the law of Moses, that, that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, and everything else which, which also follows after that. But then you had the actual law of Moses itself. The reason why the law of Moses came is because the Israelites wanted to know how can we, I mean, how are we supposed to live? How can we please and honor our God in our lives? And so they had the law of Moses. Now, I went to a seminary where it was a requirement. If you wanted to graduate from the school, you, you had to memorize and quote the entire Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, verbatim. If you miss one word, well, you have to come back tomorrow and try again. You also had to, to memorize and quote 1 Corinthians 13, among other things. And, and that seemed like, like um, a tall chore at the time to me, but there were many Jewish children living in these days where I just want, if you have your Bibles, I just want you to open up from, from Genesis and go all the way to the back of the end of Torah, just before in Joshua. And I just want you to look at all of the pages that you're holding, all of the, the words and the chapters and the books 
that Moses had written there. This entire chunk right here, okay? There were many Jewish children living in the first century at the age of 12 who could quote the entire Torah. All five of these books. And as I say quote, I mean word for word for word for word. I mean, Israelites love the law of Moses more than life itself. King David says that, I mean, he writes romantically about it in Psalms, how I love Torah, I love the law of God. It is sweeter to me than, than even the honeycomb, he writes, among other things about it. And when you were a Jew living in this time, if you broke one of those laws, if you were a devout Judaist at least, it was not so much that, oh my gosh, I have just sinned against God, but it, it was as if a crime has just been committed. And now everything in your environment now has just become a crime scene where you know that in just a couple of days, you're going to have to go before a priest, or at least at the due time. You're going to walk before a priest, and the priest is going to be standing right here. And he's going to ask you, what did you do? And you've got that animal at the altar, too. And you just kind of mumble, well, I lied. He says, I can't hear you. What did you do? You speak a little bit louder, and you say, well, I told a lie. He says, speak up. What did you do that you need to sacrifice this, 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 you know, this animal on your behalf? And you look around, everybody's looking right at you. And you just fill the air with, I lied. Another guy steps up and he says, I lusted after a woman who's not my wife. And you look around and everybody's looking at you with their mouths open. Another guy walks up and says that I cheated a neighbor of mine out of money and that neighbor's standing right there looking at him like, oh, really? I mean, it was a heartbreaking thing any time that you broke even one of these laws, no matter what it was. And yet Jesus also mentions prophets. And, and I think all of us usually define a prophet as a person who foretells something that is about to take place in the future, but... Really, the main meaning of what a prophet was is, really, it's just a person who speaks on behalf of God. As I was in another church, before I came across a hypnotist, I, I um, had a business card, and it says, David Creek, who is a stammering prophet. You know, I, I regarded my own self as a prophet because, I mean, we are, are those who speak on behalf of God. What, what God has already said, in other words. And yet the prophets were primarily those who would go into a nation and cry out against it, saying that God's judgment is about to come upon you, and if you do not repent, pretty much you guys are going down in flames. But we also know how the very last of the books of those prophets, Malachi, Old Testament is coming to an end, and it says, it speaks about a, how a Messiah is just about to come. And so Jews, for 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 really almost 400 years, waited for this Messiah to come. And so Jesus here is saying that I have not come to abolish the law or all of those men who had served as my prophets. He's saying that it's not Jesus versus the law of Moses. He's saying that, that I'm not spearheading some kind of coup against the law of Moses. But rather, we can read between the lines and see what Jesus is actually objecting to is the way that the law had been interpreted by, 
by the religious institution for, for a very long time. This is what he's objecting to. In that last verse, in verse 20, he mentions scribes and Pharisees. Well, scribes were, were mainly copiers of the scriptures. These are guys who would interpret just exactly what Torah means. Another name for them in scripture is lawyers. These are guys who were regarded as the experts of Torah or of the law of Moses. And then we also read about Pharisees. And I think we all know exactly who the Pharisees were. They were also instructors and teachers of the law of Moses. They were the ones who, who knew so much about Scripture that it was a scary thing, just how much these guys, I mean, brilliant, brilliant theologians. But if you're anything like me, you may have spent a long, really a long period of your life reading that word Pharisee and, and automatically thinking, okay, these are bad guys right here. It's almost like you read Pharisee in the same way that we might read the name Nazi or something like, oh man, these guys are just horrible. And yet I have just recently come to the realization that, that, that not all Pharisees were actually bad guys. That we actually read about some Pharisees who actually gave Jesus a chance, who actually wanted to know who he was for themselves. We read about one whose name is Nicodemus, who after Jesus has has gone into um, his tomb, he's still honoring Jesus in all kinds of ways. And so not, not all Pharisees were necessarily bad guys. But here is where scribes and Pharisees went wrong. Scribes and Pharisees started going downhill the moment that they got all caught up in religion and in politics. Really, it's the same problem in the world of today in the church, religion and politics makes its way in, and it makes us something other than Christ followers. They got mixed up in politics in the sense that, that um, a Pharisee was a religious um, party, like, like Republican or Democrat. But they became very nationalistic, thinking that, that it's, it's really to heaven with us, and it's to hell with, with all these other nations. They became very nationalistic in that sense, but, but also religious. Now, there is good religion in Scripture that we read about. It's a visitation of, of orphans and, and of widows, we know. That is good religion. But when I say religion, I'm talking about bad religion. The best way that I've ever heard this kind of religion as a description is that religion is when man tries to manage God. And starts trying to control other people through, through um, shaming mechanisms and through guilt trips. And so scribes and Pharisees began taking the glorious words of God, of Jehovah, of Yahweh, and started making it all about themselves. About how we are the elite law keepers and everybody else just is not quite on our level. They took the grandeur of the scriptures and they turned it into this rigid rat race of plate spinning. They had the audacity to look at certain people in their society and say, those are sinners. And yet they never once acknowledged that, that I'm a sinner myself. All of this eventually gave birth to what everybody in this room knows of as legalism. 
And all legalism really is, is that it is trusting in some religious code or it's trusting in your own religious performance as your means of salvation. It's got nothing to do with God. It's, it's God owes me a mansion over a hilltop because after all, I am such a holy person because I can keep all of the, the, the rules and the codes. Verse 19, Jesus makes a statement and he says that he speaks about people who were annulling certain commands. And this is what scribes and Pharisees actually started doing. They began saying, well, this one right here, this command is a big one. This, this one matters. But these commands over here that we happen to really struggle with ourselves, these ones, they're not really that important in the grand scheme of things. So if you don't keep these ones... I guess God's not going to really hold that against you kind of thing. And they taught other people this. And Jesus says, if you do that, you're going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, they're all sacred commands. I mean, every one of them are very important. And we also know that, that scribes and Pharisees went, went, went way above and beyond in unnecessary ways. I mean, they would tithe, which was good. But then... They also went into their own houses tithing spices. I mean, just, just the smallest, most minuscule things and saying that you've got to do this from, from, from now on, everybody. Yet God never asked for that. And yet they are, are um, really covering all of these very insignificant things while, while all along Jesus' point is, is that you guys do, do all of these gymnastics Things God never wanted from you, but you are neglecting things like love. You don't have any compassion in your heart for the outcast. You don't have any empathy for anybody who's hurting. You just want everybody to just bask in your splendor. This is what Jesus is coming to eradicate. Legalism is what Jesus is against. And we know that it got so bad with scribes and Pharisees that these men who claimed to be followers of God were actually willing to destroy and to kill a man and to murder and to get blood on their hands because he was messing with the religious institution. And I, of all the quotes that I've heard, one of the best is, is Aristotle where he says that to educate the mind without educating the heart, that is no education at all. And that speaks to, to so many of the scribes and Pharisees who we read about, certainly so. You know, in a lot of ways, it reminds me, and um, actually I'll get to that in a moment, just before that I wanted to say that it's not obedience to the law Jesus is being irreverent to here. His irreverence is toward an angry, heartless, self-righteous religious code this is what jesus is is really against here and anytime that i read in the scriptures about scribes and pharisees trying to 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 always challenge jesus out in the open every time that he speaks about how they would just show off as they prayed loud prayers and and confronting jesus this is what it reminds me of so so often and we don't have any sound but it's that scene in Indiana Jones where he comes across a guy who's got a sword, right? He's going to start doing all of these tricks and scribes of Pharisees, I can quote the Torah, I you know, give all of this money, and Jesus is like, okay. That's not what it's about. 
It's not the law of Moses Jesus has come to, to have gunned down in the streets. It's legalism that Jesus has come to gun down in the street. I mean, it, it takes nothing. It just goes, and it's, you know. And yet this was a tremendous problem in that day and time. But, but really what I want to emphasize is, is really verse 20. Where he's saying, truly, truly, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying that, that I'm not here to rip up your coloring book, but I'm just here to bring the crayons to the table. He's saying that, that I've come to, to, to completely break you loose out of a straitjacket of legalism and to break you out of this religious psychiatric unit called, called legalism. Jesus is simply reinterpreting that very law that they claim that they had already mastered. Jesus is here to fulfill that, that very law. And yet, we have to recognize that as we read this, we read this in ways that they could not yet in those days. We read this in a much, really in a different way than they did. And that's because that time has long since come. Jesus has said that, that I'm going to fulfill it and long ago, when Jesus stepped out of that, that empty tomb, when, when his church had been established, Jesus brought all of this to its fulfillment. We remember how in John 17, just before Jesus goes to the cross, he, he is praying and he says that I glorify. Notice, notice all of the words that he uses in the past tense. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Afterwards, as Jesus rises out of his tomb, he says to his apostles over um, at the sea, he says, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And we can read all throughout in the gospel pages, and this was in fulfillment of the prophet Jeremiah, and this was in fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah. And we look through the gospel accounts and, I mean, the most specific things he has fulfilled, his birth, where he would grow up in the city of Nazareth, well, you know, specific things that he would teach, specific ways that he would heal people, even riding on a donkey into a town, very rare thing, Jesus fulfills it. It speaks about exactly the kind of death that, that he would die all throughout in Psalms and in Isaiah, even even specific statements. Nobody knows it as Jesus says, I thirst for water on the cross, but as he utters those, those words, he is fulfilling Scripture right before their eyes. Did you know that even the exact amount of money Jesus would, would one day be betrayed for, 30 shekels of silver, hundreds of years before Zechariah is writing about it, and he says, and they, they weighed out all of my, my wages, which were 30 shekels of silver. Jesus has fulfilled all of this. You and I have never woken up to one day in our lives where we were bound by the law of Moses. When was the last time you, you went before a priest at an altar and you had an animal murdered on that altar as an atonement for your sins? How long has it been since you saw me stand up here and say at the end of a message, if you need to be baptized, 
If you need to receive a circumcision, then, you know, Jerry has his exacto knife and he's going to go to town on you. I mean, that has never happened before. And I hope that never happens because I don't want to go through Jerry giving me a circumcision for crying out loud. And yet, as we read in the book of Hebrews, it speaks reverentially about the law of Moses, doesn't it? But it also says, now that Christ has come, all of these, these wonderful things, we're not just going to erase it out of history, but it was just a shadow. Christ has come. Lynn read a moment ago, it is a far greater covenant, a far greater high priest. Jesus has brought all of this to its fulfillment. And yet we've got to go back to verse 20 again, don't we? Because even though we are no longer systematically under the law of Moses, we, we are very much bound by this right here. It seems like in the church we, we speak all the time about salvation issues, but do we not see that this is one of the biggest salvation issues that there is? That unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes of Pharisees, Really, in other words, don't be legalistic is what Jesus really is saying here. And, and yet, if we are honest with ourselves, we can look back on times in our life, maybe even areas in our life right at this very moment where, where we could realize that, man, we are more like the Pharisees than we might even realize. That very name, Pharisee, means one who is set apart. So by that definition, there's nothing wrong with those guys, at least in terms of their definition, because what are we? God says in 2 Corinthians, therefore come out from their midst and be separate. We really have that exact same calling as those Pharisees to be separate. And yet the struggle is, is to make it all about our outward appearance, our outward religious performance. Our struggle is walking in our flesh, trusting in our own fleshes rather than walking in the Holy Spirit. We come from a tribe, out of a church tribe, where, where our mantra for hundreds of years have been what? We speak where the Bible speaks and we are silent where the Bible is silent. That we call Bible things by Bible names, that we like to imitate Bereans who we read about in the book of Acts who didn't just hear the message, but they went home and they searched the scriptures daily just to see if it lined up with the actual truth. All good things. And yet, is it not possible to aspire to be a Berean, but to become way too academic in your religiosity? Have we also not ourselves dabbled in our own unwritten rules just as scribes and Pharisees had so long ago? I was having a conversation, or it may have been in our class a couple weeks ago, we, we had a sister in that class who has a story about in another region of America, there, there had been a man in that church who said that unless you are in, my, in, in a political party I am in, then you're not a Christian. And it, and it doesn't matter what political party that was, that is asinine. That where in Scripture does, does it say that you've got to be, be this or you've got to be that in, in American politics? I know a song leader in another state in the Churches of Christ who he was visiting at this church one morning and he asked another brother to come up on stage with him and they led a song together, only one song. 
But because it was two song leaders rather than just one song leader, he got a letter a couple days later from a man in that church saying that, I mean, very angry, vitriol kind of letter. And, and then came that moment in the letter where a death threat was actually issued against the song leader. I mean, not that long ago, maybe like nine or ten years ago at a Church of Christ, not that far from here, a man was actually willing to, to kill a brother in Christ because there were two song leaders instead of one. And my friend's response to this was, where does it say in Scripture that we have to have one song leader or two song leaders or three song leaders? But he's willing to kill something because of an unwritten rule that, that God never said anything about in the first place. I was having a conversation with, with um, a minister in this very region um, maybe a month ago, and he told a story many years ago. His great-grandfather had been in a church where he was a minister, and, and his dad at the time, when, when he was a little boy, he was at a Church of Christ in Iowa, and they used a piano. And when this kid grew up and he became a minister, Elders in this church heard about this, like, you know, like 60 years ago, you were at a church where they used a piano. Do you believe people who use pianos in worship are going to hell? And his response was, I have no intentions of ever adding anything like that into our worship. It's fine the way it is. It's the way that I want to worship God. Um, it's been 60 years since I've been in a church like that. But to ask me to sit in judgment and to declare that they're going to hell because of that? My answer is no. I don't believe Jesus is going to send those people to hell. Amen. And the very next words out of those elders' mouths were, then you no longer work here. You're fired. Pack up your, your, your stuff and, and hit the road. Fired a perfectly good preacher because... He refused to say they're going to hell because of that Steinway piano in their, in their church building. I mean, how many people have, have not been Christians? And they've walked into a church building, some of them even in the churches of Christ, and they want to hear about Jesus because of what they're going through in their lives, but they step inside and, and they see an angry minister banging his hand on the pulpit, saying that, that if you let your kids go trick-or-treating, you are in violation of God's word somehow. Or it is a sin for a woman to wear anything to a worship gathering other than, than you know, fancy dresses and skirts. And all of these truth-seekers leave thinking God is just this angry monster who, who only cares about Halloween and about dress codes and stuff like that where they go inside a church and everybody is just miserable and they're angry. And, and, I mean, we can look at our own lives. I mean, I can look at my own life not that long ago and think, man, what was I doing? Just this miserable, angry, religious person. And then, oh, by the way, what were scribes and Pharisees? They were miserable, angry, religious people. I'm not imitating Jesus. I'm imitating the guys Jesus said that if you want to enter my kingdom, be as much unlike them as you possibly can. So really what we need is balance, don't we? We need to have balance. Because I think so often we think
think with a tribal mentality that, that either you are over here and you're standing with us, or you're way over there and you're standing with these other people way over there. Now, in politics, there are usually two main groups. Either you are conservative or you are liberal. In the church, either you are a conservative Christian or you are a liberal Christian. In this time, in our text, either you are going to be legalistic or you're going to have no law at all and just do whatever's right in your own eyes. And yet, Osgen has said it very well as he says, if all is form, there can be no freedom, but equally, but equally, where there is no form or where there is no, no law, in other words, the stress on freedom leads to anarchy and chaos. Either one of these is incomplete. No matter what side you are standing on, eventually your side is going to get it wrong and the other might on occasion get it right as well. A good friend of mine, Brad Nelson, also says that we were never meant to master the Bible, but, but rather we are meant to let the Bible master us. And I heard that for the very first time and I thought, yes. For so long, I tried to be an expert of the scriptures. Yet I've been at this for 20 years of my life now. And I feel like I'm not even 3% there. We were never meant to master the Bible, but rather we are, are to let the Bible master us. And so as we see Jesus confronted with this choice, are, are we either going to be conservative or, or are we going to be liberal? Is it going to be all about the brain or is it going to be all about our hearts? Is it going to be all about psyche or a psychotic obedience to the law or having no law whatsoever? Jesus' response in our text would be, actually, it's neither. It's neither conservative or, or on the other side. It's neither this or it's that, but it is a combination somewhere in the middle of both. There is nothing wrong with, with really obeying what Jesus said. In fact, Jesus says, John chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commands. So we've got to keep his commands, but, but what he's emphasizing here is keep my commands from the heart. In fact, it says in the old covenant that, that I will write my law, and I'm going to put it not just in their heads, but one day my law is going to be written in their hearts. It's like King David who says that, that I have hidden your word in my heart so I will not sin against you. I mean, we need balance so much in life. Amen. I have learned for myself that, that you can try so hard not to think too, too highly of yourself and be completely guilty for years of your life of, of really thinking far too lowly of yourself. Then we should think both are just as bad. I... I I've discovered. You can believe in the value of good hard work and still drop dead of a stroke because you forgot that having one day every single day to just rest, psychologically, mentally, physically rest, that is just as important and just as sacred as work is. You can get so caught up in trying to make other people laugh and to smile that you can forget that there's also a time to be very serious and vice versa as well. You can be a Berean who searches through the scriptures and yet still be a self-righteous Bible snob 
who thinks that he is the only one who knows what the Bible says. We are destroyed with a lack of knowledge. And yet we also need humility as we accumulate knowledge because knowledge will puff you up if we are not careful. So really what Jesus wants is a head as well as a heart to go with it. And yet scribes and Pharisees, really for the most part, were just not living that way. And so what we will see for the remainder of chapter 5 in the weeks which are to come, God willing, he's going to show how scribes and Pharisees looked at, at, at many things like you know, murder, at adultery, as just the act in and of themselves. But now Jesus is going to actually move what the meanings of those things is, and, he, and he's going to show us that it's actually much closer than we've ever considered before. And so what we will see in the weeks ahead, Jesus speaks about aspects of the law, about murder, about adultery, divorce, oaths, vengeance, about who we should love. And he says, here is what law says. Here is what your screwed up conventional misinterpretation says about the law. And now here is what this actually means in the days ahead. And we will see that in the weeks ahead. But as we bring this to a close this morning, as we look around in this room, as we sit here in a church service, I just want us all to ask ourselves, why am I here? I mean, why are we doing this every single week? Is it all, I mean, is it all about rituals? Is it all about that it, it taps into nostalgia for us and it reminds us of our childhood growing up? Is it nothing but a checklist that we have to get through? Why do you want to go to heaven? Is it because we want to just really do nothing but just see mom and pa again? Are we wanting to go to heaven just because we want God to once and for all settle all of our debates and say, and say God, those Methodists and Catholics got it all wrong, didn't they? But we were the ones who got it right 1,000% of the time. Isn't that right, God? That's not what heaven's about. And it shouldn't be what this life is about either. So I just want to recommend a couple things very quickly. We need to reevaluate what the scriptures actually say. It's not just the Episcopalians and the Lutherans who need to read these things. We need to read it as well. It's not just the atheists and the hell's angels and the lesbians who need to read what the scriptures say. We also need to recognize that same exact God who's speaking to them. He's also looking right into our eyes and he's speaking. I spent a long time looking at Matthew 7, verse 21 as, oh, it's for those other guys about how many people are going to say to me, Lord, I did this in your name, I did that in your name, but he's going to say, I never knew you. And yet I realize, though, that he's speaking to us too in the churches of Christ just as much, maybe more, maybe more. I mean, how sad is that? If we stand before God at judgment saying, God, I'm so happy to see you. I can quote the Sermon on the Mount. I can break it all down in, in you know, Greek and Hebrew. And I never once missed one worship service in my entire life. Yeah, but did you love me? Did you love your neighbor as yourself? Did you visit you know, orphans and widows and homeless people and people in jail? You can quote the Sermon on the Mount. 
But did you live the Sermon on the Mount? Did you embody who I am on, on this earth? And how sad is that where the relationship that you thought was with God was actually with religious rules? And that all along you were actually serving you yourself rather than having Jesus actually in your life. Last of all, we need to reanalyze our well-guarded church positions. We need to ask ourselves, is this really the law of Christ? I mean, really, definitively the law of Christ? Or is this thing that I've been violently safeguarding and, and just chewing people's heads off about? It might just be nothing but a commandment of men. Sometimes we will see that, that yes, this actually is a law of Christ. Other times we are going to say, man, I was wasting a lot of time on that one. And I mean, I would just so much rather spend Sunday morning at a bar, at a gay parade, than to be in a sanctuary full of religious enforcers who hate everybody else's sins except for their own. This is what Jesus has come to eradicate within us. Greatness in the family of God is not incumbent upon the number of suits in our closet on who can quote more Bible verses than who, on how shiny our cathedrals are. Greatness in the family and in the kingdom of heaven is entirely surrounded by love and by honoring and by obeying God's commands, but with a child's heart of loving joy and absolute, really, astonishment in what God can do. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, I mean, I would just so much rather spend Sunday morning at a bar, at a gay parade, than to be in a sanctuary full of religious enforcers who hate everybody else's sins except for their own. 